Hello and welcome to Touching the Sunrise podcast. I am Sister Catherine Herms, author of Surviving Depression, A Catholic Approach, and Reclaim Regret, How God Heals Life's Disappointments, and Spiritual Guide in the Heartwork Program, which specializes in helping people walk the road of spiritual growth and inner healing. For the past 10 years, I have been walking alongside wonderful women and men who want a more heart-centered and spiritual life, but would like support along the way through online programs, groups, and one-on-one spiritual guidance. I walk with people along a contemplative and healing path, one that has been trodden for thousands of years. Basically, I'm here to help you surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit who has come to make your being the throne of the Holy Trinity so that your life, your prayer, your relationships, your dreams and goals will most deeply satisfy the desires of your heart. You can find out more about me and what God has led me to do in the world by visiting my website, touchingthesunrise.com. Welcome to our fourth presentation on learnings for midlife. And I'm here with my friend, Jeanette. Delightful to be here. Thank you, sister. And it's exciting as we go forward, studying and really exploring um, the mystery of midlife and um, the possibilities of hope and uh, just all the ways that our midlife can open us up as we go through the next decades of our life that truly can be so beautiful. Absolutely. First, I want to just remind us what our first three learnings have been. Mm -hmm. Our first midlife learning was we have to get lost in order to find ourselves. The second midlife learning was be attentive to pockets of possibility. And our third learning was to go forward, we must stop looking back. Today, we're going to be looking at our fourth midlife learning, expect grace and generosity of spirit in yourself and in others. So we're talking about grace and generosity of spirit. When I think of generosity of spirit, I I think of um, those times when I've been willing to be there for someone else, but I also try to think of like times when I felt more open, more accepting, um, ways in which I've, I've been a generous um, person in the way I've thought and in the way I felt and the way I've interacted with other people. And, and also that generosity that in my best moments <laughs> that I give without expecting anything in return, you know, that exactly. way of giving and loving that's a total pure gift. One of the things that I think about when I think about this generosity of spirit is exactly that issue, not issue, but that, that part of it that is doing it without expecting something in return, without even expecting someone to say thank you, just to do it because that's what's coming out of you. And I, more and more, if you look for that in others, you will see it and it really inspires you doing it as well. Yes. Even in those very subtle ways of trying to understand another person and not even expecting that they will try to understand you. You know, there's so many layers to generous 
living, not just being generous, but generous living, generous being. As I, as I think of midlife, though, I think there are like three different areas that help us to become more generous. Um, and we kind of go through those in different ways as our life develops. Last time, we really looked at Daniel Levinson's stages of adult development. And today, we're going to be looking at another model of, of stages in development. But before we do that, I just wanted to mention what I think we're going to pick up as we go through those stages today, that there are three keys or three um, aspects of, of the way we grow and open up that allow us to become truly generous people. And the first is appreciating others. And the second is being able to nourish ourselves on mystery you know, on not knowing, on not being absolutely sure all the time. And the third is being at home with the paradoxes of life. So the first was appreciating others. The second was nourishing ourselves on mystery. And the third is being at home with the paradoxes of life. So it's a way in which we step out of our security into some new open uh, landscape in which you begin to really discover so many new things. And I think the flip side to that is that you stop doing some of the things you were doing before, like judging others all the time. You know, you, you listen more, you um, bring their experience into your experience and, and, and judge whether it makes, makes sense. But it's not looking at others and saying, okay, we don't agree on certain things, so I'm not going to listen to you. Appreciating mm -hmm. them and, and accepting the paradoxes of, this is a person who is wonderful in many ways, and I disagree with in other ways, but that's all right because that's what happens. A framework that we can use to talk a little bit about what you were talking about, um, Jeanette, could be that of James Fowler. James Fowler uh, lived um, between 1940 and 2015. He was an American theologian, professor of theology and human development at Emory University. And he's most known for his book, Stages of Faith. And in that book, he, after doing many, many hundreds and hundreds of interviews with people, he lists six stages that represent not so many, so much stages, but um, various periods or kinds of faith development that happens throughout our life. And of course, the adult stages are the ones that are going to be most key for us in this conversation. That leads me to think about a framework that we can use to talk about this development that happens in our adult years. And we're going to use today the framework that was created by James Fowler, he lived between 1940 and 2015. He was an American theologian, professor of theology and human development at Emory University. His book, Stages of Faith, is what he's most famous for. And in that book, he lists six stages that represent like periods or kinds of faith development that happen in us throughout our lives. And Today, we wanted to really focus on the stages that happen between our teenage years 
and our adult years. So James Fowler outlines the kind of faith development of a teenager. That's the point in which uh, a child begins to be able to think abstractly, to put things together, to try to figure things out, and to make sense of the universe. So we create an organized belief system or school of thought, little worldview, based on things we've learned, we've been taught, what we're uh, studying in school, what our um, significant teachers, coaches, uh, ministers have taught to us. But we create this school of thought so that we can easily, ex easily explain the world and its chaos. So if something happens, I know I can go back to what I have understood the world to be, and I can make sense of what is happening. And for a child, a teenager, that's really important to be able to do as they go out into the world. Because they're understanding for how the world works, and um, they often struggle to step outside of that into something that is unknown. In this stage, there's a lot of emphasis on, on authority, on maybe what a coach says and believes and teaches and how they, they take that on. You can see the essential, uh, the essential points of having really good role models for people in their teenage years because they really take on the teaching, the thought, um, the examples of these people and make them their own. So these, uh, this authority gives them this sense of internal security and stability. It's almost like a concrete lens, a concrete foundation on which they can stand. And if they see inconsistencies or contradictions or issues in that worldview, it's difficult for them to figure out what that all means. As a result, those things get put on a little shelf in the back of our mind because you know a teenager doesn't know what to do with all of that and it's only when that shelf begins to become too heavy that they can't ignore it or it comes cracking or crack crashing down that that person moves into the next stage or the next space of faith development um, it's a time then of individual discovery and growth when they then journey out of what has been familiar, what they have been able to put together as the way they understand the world and themselves in the world. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm pausing because this is really bringing up some, some interesting memories for me. Um, I grew up in a household where my father was often away and my mother was a huge moral authority and um and i also went to a convent school so the nuns were this huge moral authority and um so i i really grew up not not questioning a lot of things i questioned i think things intellectually but not my faith because my faith was clear it was so so clear because my mother and the nuns had sort of given me this huge foundation and i never really questioned it and um, and then I went to college, and, and I went to a Catholic college, but it was college, and I was suddenly exposed to um, different ideas, people with different worldviews from mine, 
And that's exactly what you're talking about. It's cognitive dissonance where I'm learning things that don't fit in. And what do I do with that? And, and I started really thinking about it instead of putting it on the shelf, as you say. Um, because suddenly the authority wasn't there. I wasn't living with my mother. I wasn't living with the nuns. I um, was forced to start asking the questions and taking things off that shelf and saying, how do I integrate this? Um, and, and it's a way at, in the end, I think, to reclaim your faith, but reclaim it in a different way because you've questioned it because there are parts of it that are uncomfortable for you and that you still have to live with because they're part of, of the world. Um, a few years ago, I, I haven't seen it recently, but a few years ago, I was seeing bumper stickers on cars that said, question authority. And there's part of me that says, no, don't, you know, because it's more comfortable not to. Uh, I was much more comfortable living in my little cocoon of, of not questioning authority. But I think that you really need to do that and go through that in order to have a more mature faith and a more mature intellect, um, and a, a more well-rounded life. So you're really talking about this next stage, which would be stage four in James Fowler's, uh, in his vision of how this develops. It's almost like a sense of destruction and reconstruction right. of, of our right. faith, not um, of the Catholic faith or the Christian belief, but, but the worldview that I put together, the beliefs that I had, which I had left unquestioned. And um, so when we start to study things, hear things, um, uh, engage in the world in ways that make us wonder, we have to seek answers. We become a searcher. And we all, all of a sudden have a variety of sources from which to seek those answers. And we have to put those together in new ways. We have to almost internalize the values that were given to us and that we just accepted before. This is a really um, uh, delicate stage because if a person enters this space and never moves through it, they can become very disillusioned with faith, with God, with hope, um, with values. And if they never move out of that, they can reject right. what they've right. learned exactly. from their beginning. They can reject their foundation. Mm -hmm. And um, However, if they do move through it, if they go through this crisis of faith, um, if they find a reconciliation and a closure to all of this um, unrest within them, um, they move out into this place of light that's very beautiful. I remember there's a Rilke line somewhere that said, um, live with the questions. And th I don't know when I read that, <laughs> but that has always stayed with me, that it's so important to be able to live the question. Um, and I think it's important to remember that that it's not static, that this is going to continue. You're going to continue to encounter thoughts and, and events that cause you to reconsider how you fit that into your worldview. So it may start with teenagers, but it kind of continues through your life. Yeah. And, 
And living the question then doesn't mean there isn't an answer. Right. But it does mean that now I have to work through all the questions regarding this in order to reclaim the answer as my own, not just my mother's. Mm-hmm. Or the convent, the nuns, mm-hmm. <laughs> as my own. I work one-on-one with a lot of people, and, a, and many times there'll be a, um, like, tell me this. What do I do now? Right. What's the answer for this? And I don't answer them because then I become another authority. Right. That they just have to say, okay, sister said this or whatever. Instead of saying, okay, well, let's think this through. Live the question, and you will come to the answer. But it will be your, your uh, the, the answer will have the coloring of your personality, your character, your history, um, the spiritual life that you've lived with God, which is different from mine. And that colors each of our, uh, each of our expression of the truth, of true of what is true. And I'm thinking right now of like a beautiful mosaic. We all belong to the same mosaic of the body of Christ. But if we were all one color and every single stone was exactly a square, it would be a very, uh, very not a very beautiful mosaic. But instead, we're all there in the body of Christ. But, you know, mine might be a pastel color and yours might be flaming red and someone else's might be green. But we all make up um, this beautiful expression of what is true. Um, and that gets filtered through our past experiences, our history, our personalities, our prayer. So um, when you walk through then this, this critical crisis of faith, of doubt, of uncertainty, you never are able to go back to your old modes of ways of thinking. Life is really never the same. So when you do walk through this, you move through into stage five. And, um, and usually this can take many years in this journey through stage four and then through stage five. And as we're talking about this, I don't want you to be thinking, okay, I have to figure out what stage am I in? You know, what do I have to do to get to the next stage? Because God takes care of moving us through, um, not through stages, because these stages, um, stages, if we want to call them stages, I call them spaces. They're spaces of encounter with God that happen over and over in these little pockets of encounter that um, open us up in new ways, that make even now, I'm, I see again like, oh, wow, I'm still holding on to this unquestioned uh, way of seeing um, the schedule, <laughs> for example, <laughs> in our community, or um, this rule, or that um, belief, or whatever. Instead of stepping back and saying, let me explore and, be- and enter it more deeply, and enter it with more wisdom. Um, to gather together, not just um, as a sister, what I learned in novitiate from one person 30 years ago, but from what I've seen from 100 women living this together, what now is a much wiser way of integrating that into my life? That's the kind of thing we're thinking of. Right. And, and in that journey, it, it gets a little rocky and a, a little scary sometimes because... 
because we begin to, to be uncertain and walk into the unknown. But it's only in getting lost, as we said, that we are able to be found. I have a story about, it was told that during a class we had, it was an ju older Jesuit, and he was talking about how at a certain stage of his life, he just was very depressed, and he didn't quite know what his problem was, what was wrong. Hmm. And he spent many months, like um, eight or nine months, just not being able to get his act together, um, not being able to get out of the chaos within his own soul and psyche and emotions and thoughts. And um, he, he talked about how a younger Jesuit would come and sit with him every night and not say anything. He would just listen and receive whatever this older Jesuit had to say. Whatever was in his heart, whatever was in his mind, all, whatever that chaos was, mm -hmm. he didn't correct him. He didn't tell him what was better to be thinking, why he was incorrect in the way he understood things. He didn't do anything. And I often um, think about that younger Jesuit in this case, how, you know, sometimes when you're hearing things, it pushes your buttons. Have you ever experienced that, Jeanette? And, yeah, um, I have. You know, things, you know, push your buttons and it's like, you know, they frighten you or they, they at least make you st st sit up and like, what is she saying or what do they mean by that? Or mm -hmm. like, that's a scary thing to say and believe or whatever. And yet he had the courage to simply be there as a presence. And for him, that was really a wealth because it takes a certain strength of character and generosity of spirit to be able to receive the paradox of another person right. and to hold that uh, for them without intruding yourself in on it. Mm -hmm. And as, as the Jesuit is telling a story, he was saying how within eight or nine months, it just all kind of passed and he emerged out of it um, very strong, yet more gentle um, clear, but yet more um, willing to live with mystery. So something had happened in those nine months, and I'm sure for the younger priest who listened to him, something had happened for him too. Yeah. Oh, that's, a, that's such a beautiful story because it really illustrates that um, we can, we can do all of this. You know, you said he was an older man. We can do all this in midlife. We can move through these things and change and develop and listen and learn. And it's just, that was a beautiful story. I love that. So when we exit the tunnel of those years of questioning and searching, we come to this beautiful place of newness and of light that feels very, very different from what we had previously experienced. Um, suddenly, we kind of realize the limits to ourselves, to what we can figure out on our own, um, the limits to the way we emotionally react to things, mm -hmm. that this isn't necessarily the only way to react or the best way to react. Um, we encounter the limits of our personal spirituality 
as we see the great wealth of, of being able to listen to others' experience of God and their experiences in life. We were open to, um, to learn and to be enriched um, by others. So we're able to give generously, but also to receive generously. There's that level of appreciation that actually makes us richer in our life. So we can call these the sacraments of, of the mysteries, of the paradox, of, of, of the sacrament of chaos mm -hmm. that we can open up to and listen and learn through. Yeah, and I think that that is really, we talked a little bit at the beginning of the podcast about generosity of spirit. And that's really where I see all this flowing, where you're generous in what you're giving and you're generous in what you're receiving. And it's all, you know, part of this one, this, this one same, um, I don't want to say continuum, but, 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 you know, this the same experience that, um, that opens you up to others. I wanted to tell a story that, that it, it, it involves you sister. <laughs> um, but, a few years ago, for, for a number of different reasons, I became the guardian of an elderly woman at a time when she was sadly sliding into dementia, which is why she need, needed a guardian. Um, I had known this woman. I loved her for many years, and it just seemed like that was a logical thing for me to do for her. But I, I was doing it at a distance. I was living in Boston, and she, she was on, in Wellfleet on Cape Cod, and her dementia increased. And... I was living too far away to really help her. I was spending all my weekends with her. Um, we had some people coming in during the day, during the week, but she needed a lot more than that. She really needed someone living with her. Um, and I realized then that there were two options. I could have her put into a nursing home, which she would have absolutely hated, or I could do something about it um, and I could move in with her. And Honestly, you know, I, I struggled with it for about 30 seconds because I just knew I couldn't have it on my conscience um, that I could have done something for her. And instead, I put her in a nursing home. Um, so I made um, it was an instant decision out of love for her. But it was also a difficult decision because it meant that I had to move and I had to leave my work with the Daughters of St. Paul um, because I came in every every weekday there. Um, and what happened was that you, sister, in this huge, huge, huge generosity of spirit said, we're going to figure out how to make this work. And, and we did. We, made, we found ways of um, my being able to continue with, with, um, with the Daughters of St. Paul, um, with Pauline Books and Media, and also be with my elderly charge, my friend, um, who then died eventually. But... I was able to do something for her through your generosity of spirit. And um, it really, I think, changed the way that she was able to live and die and the way that I was able to live after that. It, it, your generosity of spirit really changed my life. And your generosity of spirit, actually knowing that you had made that decision, is what led also to our generosity of spirit. So generosity of spirit is almost contagious. 
To <laughs> be generous. Remain. I never thought of that, but that's brilliant. Yeah, remain it is. Love, made to be generous, or made to give. Right, right. Yeah, I, I just think there's just so much about our faith that centers on generosity. Um, and I think we have to stop and realize that where that's coming from, that it's flowing from the abundance of love that we receive from God, this unconditional, absolute love. Um, and so we know fundamentally that we're blessed, but even so, it takes some effort to cultivate our attention to finding and keeping a continued awareness of the presence of God in daily life, because that's what enables this um, this, this exchange of, of generosity in, in giving and seeing it in others and in receiving it. And it makes us more open to seeking his hope, God's hope and his guidance for us in everything from, from everything, from the great and wonderful things that we see and, and the smaller actions um, that we can take um, to respond to the rea realities of those who are poor and those who are vulnerable. So, this stage that we've been talking about, often people don't reach, quote, reach, mm -hmm. um, talking about it in the language of stages until their late 40s and their 50s, because it requires a certain amount of living through life, of encountering the paradoxes and the, un, the inability to resolve situations, um, right. the chaos and the complexities of life. So, um, you know, it takes some time in our midlife then where we realize we're not going to resolve them, but we move beyond them to decide how we're going to live, how we're going to give, how we're going to be generous. The last stage from James Fowler's uh, model, mm -hmm. if, you were, if you will, is, um, is very few, they say, reach this stage. It's a stage of the Mother Teresa of Calcutta, Mahatma Gandhi, you know, the saints and the gurus um, throughout the ages. There are people who, you know, had this undefiled spark of pure humanity within them. They, they're people, you know, of all faiths, really, who um, are characterized by a loss of selfishness, a loss of, I need to get my individual way, my wants and my needs taken care of. And there are people who live totally in the full service of others. Um, last night, I was just watching on 60 Minutes, and I'm sorry I don't remember her name, but she's a journalist in the Philippines. And she has really given her life to be telling truth to power about what's happening there. And um, she has had death threats and all kinds of threats, has been arrested several times. And you know, she's not going to stop because in this case for her, democracy is too important a value to lose in her country. And then they were just looking at um, the danger of being a journalist in, um, in that country as an example. And there were several others. There was a video that played, and it went through um, different journalists. And the question was asked, have you been threatened with death? Yes, yes, yes. Have you been told how you're going to die? Yes, yes, yes. And what has been that way? It has been beheading. It has been, we will get rid of you. You will be shot, you know. 
And as I was listening to this, I was saying, wow, these people are in a sense, um, there is an example of this. They no longer have made their lives about their individual wants and needs, but they're putting themselves at the full service of society, of others by um, their journalism for the society and the good of the country. Um, so their superficial doubts and worries have just been cast aside in order to really look at what is truly important here, what is true human existence all about, what is sacrifice calling for, what is love calling for, compassion, unity, and selflessness. So um, it is said that very few people reach this stage, but um, I bet you there are a lot of people that do, you know, also in this time, um, because there are a lot of people who, around the world, who are really giving their lives for their faith, their family, um, their countries, um, and for values that they truly, truly believe in and don't want lost to humanity. Yeah, as, you, as you're talking about the, um, the journalist, I was thinking of um, a fairly new, newly sainted person, Saint Oscar Romero, the Archbishop of El Salvador. And um, he, he, he said on many occasions, he knew he was going to die. He knew that they were going to kill him and he would not leave his people. And he was indeed killed while he was saying mass. Um, and, and just to live with that knowing that you've made that choice to do the right thing. It's almost, it, it's almost like I heard a definition once um, of, of having values as you're doing the right thing even when no one is looking. You know, mm -hmm. you're not doing it for anyone to see or anyone to comment on or um, you just do the right thing because you do the right thing. Mm -hmm. and, and that's incredibly, that's got incredible generosity of spirit. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it, it comes from remembering something that God is the creator, you know, that, that he gave us life for reason. And, mm -hmm. um, and that comes with some obligation to give it back, to do something to, um, to, to make our lives of value. Mm -hmm. You know, he gave us life. He sustains us by his gifts. He redeems us. Um, and what I always think is we always have this false sense of being in charge, you know, mm -hmm. um, that, that, that I'm better because of where I live. I'm better because of what I do. I'm better because of how much money I make or how my family turned out. And, and the reality is that all these things, it's not about us. It's about God's grace through God's grace. Um, I was given certain gifts and I think they come with some sort of obligation. Um, I go back to just on the financial front. Um, I think I, I mentioned earlier that I grew up in a family that had a great deal of money. And um, one of the things that, that my parents were very clear about is that you are not any better than anyone else. And in fact, you have an obligation because you were born into this, um, this situation to give to others, to, to, to move some of not just, you know, the finances by giving to charities, but that you have obligations because you were given so much. And I think that in a, in a sense, not in, they were speaking 
obviously financially, you know, Mm -hmm. but in a sense, we were given so many gifts that we do have obligations. Um, And if we stop and think about that, you know, this, this fundamental gratitude that we we need to have because of all these gifts. um, And we, and if we carry that with us, even in difficult times, we're going to find that we have peace, that we have resilience, um, we can be a stronger presence of optimism and hope for other people. And eventually, as we get into the, if, if we reach this, this stage you've been talking about, or if we come near it at least, then our lives become this ongoing experience of giving to others what God's given us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Stages can be really scary to talk about and even to think about, um, to think about in relation to your own life. I remember I was 33 when I took a class, Faith Development Across the Life Cycle. And in that class, we studied many different authors who had different stages of development across the adult lifespan. And I am so grateful for that class because it made me realize what was coming, what was in the future. And it made me realize, especially at that time in my early 30s, what I was feeling and going through was good, was normal. Right. And also I learned from that moment that it's not like I have to say, okay, I'm going to now, I've been in stage three a little bit too long here. (laughs) I think I'm going to do this, this, and the other thing to get out and move along. <laughs> and move along, yeah. Move along. No, it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's the same with Daniel Levinson's stages, eras mm-hmm. of adult development there. It's God is at work within us and about us, every detail of our lives. And in the details and the working out of all those details in our lives, within us and without us, we begin to move. And so simply knowing these kind of large descriptions Mm -hmm. of how we feel and move and change allows us to move with what is happening instead of being afraid or resisting it or trying to move back because we think that what we had before was actually better. Right. And um, it's it's the same as um, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila they painted a map of spiritual growth. And once you realize over there is where you're going, then you no longer need to stick around over here because it's okay to be on the journey and it's okay to be on the journey here. So instead of thinking in the um, concept necessarily of, I need to uh, like develop my sages, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it might be more um, practical to look at what are the practical ways in which we can grow in generosity of spirit, those day-to-day steps we can make, choices we can make that allow us to become a more generous person. Because as we do these things, we will encounter within ourselves those concrete lenses that need to soften up, those um, stuck places that need to open up to the wisdom of the ages by thinking about them more deeply, whatever it may be. Um, I don't know if you'd like to start out with some of those practical ways. Well, I think that the first thing that you want to do is, um, is talk about kindness. Um, 
because because that's actually the easiest step is to think about what is the kind thing to do here. Um, you know, note that there's somebody behind you so you can hold the door for them when you go in somewhere. Um, you can give a, a, a waiter or a waitress, you know, a big tip um, just because you want to be nice to them and they want to, and, and you want to pass that on. Um, you can see, you know, if you're at the grocery store and, and there's someone behind you with two items and you have 14, you know, you can let them go ahead of you. These are tiny, tiny things. Um, you can, you can, in your, when you're in your car, you know, you don't have to worry. You don't have to be so upset about who's going to be first in line when the, when the, the road narrows, you know, you can let the other driver go first. Um, you don't need to do big things. You can do small things and they're small, wonderful things that can change both you and the person who received them. And we've seen so many stories of when someone does a kindness to you, you end up passing it on to others. Um, you know, there's that whole movement of pay it forward. You know, um, when you go through the drive-in, you know, pay for the driver who's behind you. Um, that sort of thing, it just, just really makes a difference in your life and in the lives of others. And I think that the more kindness we can do, the better the world's going to be. I really do. So the next thing you can do, and another practical way of, of developing this generosity of spirit is um, to think abundantly. Um, you know, we're, we're always thinking about, you know, who's ahead or, you know, who was, who was hurt, who was a situation where, who, who was the one that um, was the recipient of, of unfairness. Um, there's this sense that there's this pie out there and that if someone else has more of the pie, that they're, they're better than you are. So you want more of the pie. And the reality is, um, you know, it's not that the more you get, the less there is for me. Um, the idea here is the opposite. The more for you, the more there'll be later for me and for everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, so to think that, you know, it's, it, we don't use things up. We don't use up kindness. We don't use up um, plenitude in a sense of spirit that the more you do, the more there is. Another, another practical way is to really think in terms of empathy. Yes, absolutely. Um, to really enter into the experience of another person. You know, I think we're living in a time when um, just from society is so important to have an opinion. It's so important to know uh, who's who in the zoo, as I would say. Right. Um, even about things that are not that important. I love to follow the royal family, and I may have an opinion about each one of the members of the royal family. <laughs> really? Of what importance? <laughs> That's a side to you I didn't know about, sister, okay? We get into that discussion at table sometimes about the members of the royal family. <laughs> but, um, that's just a funny little thing, though. But isn't it true? We, we, we want to have opinions about things. We want to know. It's important to us. It's important to an adult to have a sense of understanding of something. And it, to be intelligent is... Is not to um, is not to just let things slide, you know. And to and to be intelligent is to be curious, to want to know, to want to figure things out, to want to analyze the situation. But when you're coming to people, though, when you're coming to listening to others, when you're coming to situations of paradox, 
to allow in that paradox, one of the key practical considerations is to have empathy for the other person. Um, empathy for how they're experiencing something or how they look at something because of maybe what they've been through or maybe what they've received or where they went to school or whatever it may be. Um, but just that sense of what can I learn here? How can it enrich the whole conversation? How can our conversation enrich both of us? Um, and how can we together more completely come to understand what is true, good, and beautiful? I, I think that's so true. I think that we often get into this, one person has to be right and the other person has to be wrong. And, and that's the, you know, the mindset. And to be able to um, have that empathy and say, again, you know, that I don't agree with all the things you're saying, but I'm listening to them. You know, I'm, I, because, because I care about you as a person. Um, and I may, may end up at the end still not agreeing with you, but at least I've heard your point of view. And, you know, we don't know, we don't know what stories, we don't know what the backstory is to people when they, when they present themselves to us. So if there's something that we disagree with or don't like, you don't know what, what journey they had to get there. And, and just as they don't know how, what your journey was like to get there. And um, it's just so important to just be able to try to enter into their experience mm -hmm. um, because it really does enrich both of you. I think you're so right. A connector with that is really giving others the benefit of the doubt. Um, right. It's so easy to um, assume motivations for things that are said or done or that we see and um, that people did things on purpose or they did things for this or that reason. But there's a certain malice, um, which we don't consciously assume, or um, we don't consciously assume our, our own sense of looking at another person's activity as having a certain malice to it. But um, when we give people the benefit of the doubt, we just let them be, say, and do what's happening without necessarily judging it before the words come out of their mouth. Right, exactly. The action happens. And um, not to judge them as people. Maybe mm -hmm. I don't agree. Maybe I feel that something is, is not right. Um, but to be able to give the other person the benefit of the doubt as they're also struggling through growing in their life, searching for... Um, a way to find what is more, more um, real, more true, more accurate, more really truly founded on, um, on what is real, what is real. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, to go back briefly to, to what we were talking about before that transition time of college and being, um, encountering different opinions and, and learning and growing, um, it, I, I find it interesting now with, you know, with, with, as I look back in retrospect, but um, my mother and I are both, we're both, I say we're both because she's deceased, but both practicing Catholics. Um, and interestingly enough, being Catholic led me in one political direction and led her in another political direction. And at first I, I was so upset that I just, you know, I can't talk to her. I can't, I can't deal with this. Um, because I've, I've taken a different route 
based on some of the same precepts, interestingly enough, based on us both being Catholic. But, um, but then, you know, at some point you, st- you realize I'm starting to make assumptions about the other person based on the things that I disagree with rather than giving, giving them, as you say, the benefit of the doubt and thinking, okay, you know, they've come to this, this point and this is where, where their faith led them. And this is where my faith led me. And that's really okay. You've got to be able to live with that because you still love the person. So there really is a lot of work just to letting in what another person is saying. Yes. Um, with all of its nuance, you know, when we've already judged it before it's out of their mouth, then we're laser sharp on what we think they're saying. And we can't hear all the nuance of what they're truly saying, to hear them as they are. Um, And that's a lot of hard work to be able to do that, but it's work that's so important. Yeah, and I think finally, one of the things that that we often leave out when we're talking about generosity of spirit is being generous with yourself. Um, I find this particularly difficult. I'm always saying, oh, Jeanette, you're such an idiot. Um, when I do things or think things or say things that, that are pretty idiotic, which sometimes happens. Um, but to just be able to um, be generous of spirit with ourselves inside our heads, inside our hearts, inside our souls, um, it means that our spirit is going to be pulling that out into the world. It's what we're going to be emanating, even when we're not speaking, even when we're not going through these different stages, that is going to really inform the way we are in the world and it's going to touch people. Mm. But, you know, I, I, again, if it, you know, those are great practical steps and, and I think they're important to think about. But it's, I think it's also really important to think about generosity as being the only real response we can have to the cross and the sacrifice of Christ. Um, he has done so much for us, and it seems such a small thing in return that we could give is kindness and generosity to others. I think that's the only correct response to being Catholic, because we've received this incredible gift. and. There are so many small, easy ways we can pass some of that on, you know. And I also think that it's really important, especially perhaps in this day and age, um, to realize that if you're, if you're going to be a generous person, you're taking a huge amount of responsibility for your life. You're not blaming others. You're not blaming circumstances when things go wrong. Um, you're, you're still offering that generosity as I said before, when no one's looking, you know, they just, people who are generous of spirit, they step up and they do the right thing. And I think that we can only do this and we can especially do this when we realize that the Holy Spirit is living inside us and is guiding our path. That a person of generous spirit takes the gospel edicts to heart and lives them. You know, generosity of spirit synthesizes that fruit of the spirit that St. Paul talks about in his letter to the Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Each of the fruits of the Holy Spirit contains this generosity of spirit. That's a wonderful way as we draw near the end of this time together um, to think about um, generosity of the spirit and really the call of the Christian life. And it brings us together, brings together this whole journey that we've been talking about, this Uh, journey of surety, of opening it all up and having to work it through, 
And coming to this space of uh, sacrifice, generosity, loving, self-giving. Um, so we're kind of bringing together belief, hope, and the spirit of generosity in middle life as we work through these um, spaces, I would call them, of mm -hmm. development, of spiritual development of faith within our whole being. This belief, hope, and the spirit of generosity come together to really make us more effective in whatever we're doing, parenting, grandparenting, ministry, and whatever our career may be. And it's not hard to figure out that the more people believe in what they're doing, the more they really have hope for the future. And the more hope they have that tomorrow will be better than today, the more likely they are to be generous of spirit in all they do. The more generous they are, the more everyone around them is likely to believe in the greatness of the community. And the more they believe, the better their lives will be. And Absolutely. those of us in our middle life, our middle years, there's 20 of them or so, um, really, it's about building the community, building tomorrow. It's about carrying that torch of hope, belief, and generosity so that those younger than us, those behind <laughs> us, can also have the courage to follow that same journey. Absolutely. It's, it, it, it's really important that we're emanating that because that's what's going to change the world. It really yeah. is. So it's been really beautiful, as usual, as always, speaking together with you, Jeanette. And um, we have one more of our midlife learnings next time. And so I look forward to that. I thank you again. And I, am, I want everybody to know that we're thinking of them and praying for them as they negotiate these journeys in their own life. God bless you. God bless you all. God has amazing ways of knocking on people's hearts, awakening desires, arousing questions, provoking an unexpected spiritual fire. Remember, if you'd like some extra support and are ready to embark on a sustained spiritual journey, you can connect with me in a number of ways by going to my website, touchingthesunrise.com. So until the next time, take care of yourself. And remember that you are not alone. You are loved no matter what. And when you search within yourself, you will not only find yourself, but the throne of the Divine Trinity. You have a calling, a mission, and every gift, every grace, every moment, even every fall, mistake, and sin is a step toward your completely and wholly being taken up into the mystery of God's love for you and for all creation. Remember always that you have a treasure of inexpressible joy hidden in an earthen vessel, small and fragile. May this overflowing joy fill you and yours with its fragrance. God be with you.